welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. My apologies for the extraordinarily long break between episodes, but I'm back now and ready to get back into this. We've been having a crazy summer here in Alaska. We just had a couple weeks of just all-time high heat records. It hit 89 on July 4th, and there was a couple weeks of mid to upper 80s, which is totally abnormal. Plus, the state's been pretty much on fire. It's kind of the end of the world. But you know what? I feel fine. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my kind and generous and model gorgeous patrons. All of my patrons are getting something in the mail from me. It's on its way. One of you will be getting a copy of The Midnight Assassin by Skip Hollinsworth. You'll just have to wait and see. And at the end of this month, I will be sending out a copy of one of my World War II and Alaska sources to another patron. I haven't quite decided which book yet, but there's still three weeks before the end of the month, so I should be getting that into the mail to you by Christmas. Now, before we get back into World War II in Alaska, I wanted to discuss a very recent crime that actually made headlines all over the world because it's a bizarre story. And it's a local case, and while it obviously hasn't gone to trial yet, I wanted to give a brief overview, as I sometimes do. And I think a lot of you probably already heard about it. About a thousand people shared it with me, and I appreciate that. Um, I saw that it was in newspapers in other countries, which is crazy, and it's just one of the most bizarre stories I've ever heard. So... On June 2nd, 19-year-old Cynthia Hoffman went missing. What started out as a missing persons case would spiral into something so much more horrifying. According to her father, Timothy, Cynthia of Anchorage was supposed to meet up with her sister on Sunday, the 2nd, but never showed, which was very unlike her. Her sisters, brothers, and father tried calling and texting her, but they didn't really get much of a response. He told police that he had texted with Cynthia's friend, 18-year-old Denali Brimmer, who said that she had dropped Cynthia off at a place called Polar Bear Playground at Russian Jack Springs Park in East Anchorage earlier that day. Brimmer claimed to know nothing of Cynthia's plans for the rest of the day and said that she had not heard from her since, but that she was very worried. On Monday, her fire On Monday, her father filed a missing persons report, describing her as a vulnerable adult with a learning disability, and he then began to contact everyone he could think of, and he drove all over town visiting places that he thought she might be. He had a really bad feeling. Cynthia was a sweet and trusting person, and though she was technically an adult, her developmental disability meant that she actually functioned on the level of around a 13 or 14 year old. And all the while this was happening, 18 year old Bremer continued to text him, trying to find out what was going on and continuing to express her concern for Cynthia.
The police also began searching on Monday, starting at the playground where she had been dropped off at. They also began contacting all of her friends and acquaintances, and eventually they spoke with Bremer's mother. The mother said that Cynthia may have been shot and shoved in the river, but didn't know anything else. The next day, they spoke with Bremer herself and another friend, 16-year-old Caden McIntosh, who had allegedly been with Bremer on that Sunday. As they spoke to the police, the terrible truth began to slowly emerge. Bremer and McIntosh admitted they had never actually been at the playground, but had actually started the day about 40 miles north of Anchorage in the Wasilla Palmer Valley, driving around and smoking weed. They then decided to go hiking at Thunderbird Falls, a few dozen miles north of Anchorage. They told the police that they had led Hoffman to a secluded area where they said they came up with the idea to bind each other up with duct tape and take weird pictures. So they bound Cynthia, AKA Cece, with duct tape. They claimed that she started to panic and told them to let her go. She started freaking out, said she was going to call police and accused them of kidnapping and sexually assaulting her. Bremer had brought her nine millimeter pistol on this hike, which McIntosh used to shoot Cece in the back of the head. They then shoved her in the river and scrambled to come up with a good story. They took her phone and belongings. They texted her family members and left some of their belongings at the playground and burned the rest of them. Just a few days later, on June 4th, Timothy Hoffman and his family received the worst news imaginable. Cynthia's body had been found, and a girl that she considered her very best friend had been involved in her death. At first, McIntosh was the only one charged. He admitted to pulling the trigger and claimed that Bremer should not get in trouble. But just a few days later, while being held in jail, McIntosh started telling people that the whole thing had actually been planned from the beginning by Bremer and that he was just going along with her ideas. By that Friday, June 7th, Bremer was also arrested in connection with the murder. Just two days later, three more people were arrested in connection. 19-year-old Caleb Leland and two minors whose names were not released. They were arrested for being part of the planning of the crime, but not the actual crime itself. Leland's vehicle had been used in the crime, and he would also end up being charged for unrelated sexual assault against the minor female charged in the case. It gets more complicated from here. And yet, it's not over. While doing digital forensics on the phones of the suspects, law enforcement found child porn on Bremer's phone. This was located in messages between herself and someone else. During the messages, the two had originally began discussing a sexual assault on a minor female. And then later on in the messages, Brimmer sent a video of herself performing that sexual assault on the minor to the other individual. Bremer ended up telling police that the other person was named Tyler and he lived in Kansas and he was a man that she had met on the internet. He apparently wanted video of her sexually assaulting a minor under 10 and a 15 year old, the latter of which was in the video. 
Some extremely basic research tracked Tyler down. In actuality, the phone number belonged to 21-year-old Darren Schillmiller of Indiana. After doing some more basic investigation into Schillmiller and his communication with Bremer, 10 days after Hoffman's murder, law enforcement announced that Schillmiller would be indicted in relation to the murder, along with the other five that already had been announced. As it turns out, the incredibly stupid catalyst for this tragic tale was a moronic lie told to a pack of idiots. Shill Miller claimed to be a millionaire, and he told Bremer that he would pay her $9 million to murder someone and to send him recorded evidence. Bremer was gung-ho, but she couldn't do it alone, so she managed to recruit the other four to help her complete the plan. She promised them they would all receive a big payout upon the completion of the murder. Bremer had been talking to this guy online for months, and the murder planning had been going on for weeks, as far as law enforcement could see. However, in all of this time, Bremer had no idea what Darren's real name was, nor had she ever seen an actual photo of him, let alone any proof of him actually being a millionaire. So if this group of miscreants had somehow managed to not get caught for this horrible crime, they would have done it all for nothing. And either way, an innocent girl's life has been taken, a family has been destroyed, and a community has been utterly shocked by this vicious crime committed by such young people against someone that they considered a friend. And when it all shakes out, Cynthia's sweet-natured personality was one of the reasons that she was chosen. The group had actually met within weeks of the crime to pick a victim. And Cynthia was chosen primarily because she was somewhat naive and innocent. In short, they thought she would be an easy victim. Shill Miller is currently in custody in Indiana, awaiting extradition to Alaska. All six suspects have been indicted for first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit, and second-degree murder. And the three main suspects were also charged in relation to solicitation and evidence tampering. I will certainly discuss this case further as it progresses. And now we will jump back into Alaska in June of 1942, just about the last place on earth that most of the people involved would want to find themselves. Prior to battle talk, I'm just going to give a quick overview of some of the officers involved so that if you hear me mention their name, you'll know who I mean. I will briefly discuss a few others, but they are less important, so I'm just going to name the main people that were going to be involved. I did briefly discuss a few of them on the Dutch Harbor episode as well, but wanted to give a bit of a broader picture so that you kind of know who you're dealing with. First, we have General Simon Buckner Jr. He was the son of a Confederate war general of the same name. As an 18-year-old, he was given an appointment to West Point by President Roosevelt himself, and he graduated from there in 1908. He fought in World War I and World War II before being promoted to Brigadier General. He led the Alaska Defense Command from 1940 to 1944 and was extremely integral to the favorable outcome of the Aleutian Campaign. Spoiler alert. Once the Aleutian Campaign was over, he was sent to the South Pacific, and one year later, just a few months before the Japanese surrender in June of 45, Buckner perished along with over 12,000 other troops at the Battle of Okinawa. He was the highest ranking military officer to be killed in action in the Pacific Theater. 
One of the most bizarre places in Alaska now bears his name. In the 1950s, Alaska built a massive building of over 250,000 square feet in the tiny port town of Whittier, Alaska, and they called it the Buckner Building. It was designed to house 1,000 troops, along with anything they might need to make their lives comfortable, including a bowling alley, a movie theater, post office, food. It was called the City Under One Roof, and it was built due to escalating tensions with the Soviet Union and Cold War fears. However, after just a few years of operations, the military left Whittier in 1960, and the building became empty. Ownership has changed hands over the years, but the building has never been occupied again. It's just kind of a massive waste of resources. It became just a massive crumbling reminder of a bygone era. The town of Whittier, which now only has a population of around 200 people, still mostly live in one building together. And it's actually notable for being only accessible by boat or through a 2.5 mile long mountain tunnel the longest in North America. The Buckner building is fenced off now after decades of people wandering through the derelict building, but you can find plenty of pictures and videos online, and I really recommend finding them, especially the GoPro video shot by somebody that skied through the length of the building a few years ago. It's very impressive and kind of terrifying because it, it looks like you might expect an abandoned insane asylum from a horror movie to look like. That was just a little tangent, give you a bit of information on one of the more interesting places in Alaska. Next up, we have Rear Admiral Robert, AKA Fuzzy Theobald, whom would command the North Pacific Naval Force until 1943. It says a lot about his feelings for the Aleutian campaign that he didn't even mention his time in Alaska in a casual memoir that he later wrote. He was not considered a great leader, and he tended to base decisions on guesswork rather than intelligence. He was removed from that post in 1943 and retired in 1945. Later in life, he also wrote a book claiming that Roosevelt knew about Pearl Harbor in advance and let it happen anyway, based on absolutely no evidence. That's really all you need to know about him, but you'll hear more about him during the battle talk, of course. Next, we have Colonel William Erickson, a World War I vet and West Point graduate. He led the 36 Bombardment Squadron during the Aleutian. He was both respected and liked by those he led for not only his leadership skills, but for his intelligence, wit, and his tendency to get down and dirty and do the hard work with the troops. He was never content to be stuck at a desk and always wanted to be where the action was and during his career, he was awarded every combat decoration except for the Medal of Honor. And while his fellow officers found him to be too much of a maverick, they couldn't deny that he did his job well. He survived the war and died in 1966. Spoiler alert. Lastly, we have Oswald S. Kolklo. He was a naval captain that commanded the North Pacific Submarine Fleet. He was born in 1889 and was a graduate of the Annapolis Naval Academy. He retired from the military in 1949 and went on to have quite an impressive career beyond his wartime valor. Prior to World War II, he had obtained a law degree and in 1949, he returned to his alma mater of 
George Washington University to be the dean of the law school. He also taught there and was president of the university for five years. He was also a chairman in about 100 different groups related to the military and law. He died in 1981 at the age of 82, but even on that day, probably jogged 10 miles first. Those are the four main officers to know who I will mention quite often throughout this, and you'll hear other names, but they may be important, but less important for the Aleutian campaign. So if you haven't listened to the previous World War II episode, which I released approximately a year ago, the Battle of Dutch Harbor, just kidding, it was like two months, you should definitely listen to that. It's, I mean, you can still understand what's going on in this episode, but it's might, might be helpful. So in that episode, I discussed the events that kicked off the Aleutian campaign in the first week of June, 1942. And then in this episode, I will discuss the plan for which the Dutch Harbor attack was merely a, di a diversion. The invasion and occupation of Attu and Kiska Island in the Western Aleutians. And the Japanese could hardly have chosen a worse location for an invasion, and they would surely come to regret the choice in the months to follow. First we have Attu Island, which is the westernmost island in the Aleutian chain and in the United States though it actually crosses the international dateline and is technically in the Eastern Hemisphere. It's only a couple of hundred miles from the closest Russian territory. It's 1,100 miles from mainland Alaska and 2,000 miles from Japan. It's a relatively large island at 340 square miles. It's got terrible weather, a subarctic climate, and a record high temperature of all time of 72 degrees. It's pretty much always windy, foggy, and rainy there with winds exceeding 100 miles per hour on a regular basis. It gets around eight to 10 days of clear weather per year on average. There are also no trees. It's not prime real estate is the point I'm trying to make. 350 miles east of Attu is the island of Kiska at 100 square miles with an active 4,000 foot high volcano. At the time of this event, the island was only populated with a dozen Navy men that were functioning as a weather detachment. The island has never had a true permanent population. The two islands were really odd targets for invasion, but also easy targets, which is why they were chosen. The Japanese wanted to boost their nation's morale with some small victories. At the time of the invasion, Attu actually did have a small population of around 40 to 45 people. And prior to the invasion, it was a very peaceful little community. Nearly every resident there was an Aleut, with ancestors who had lived in the region for thousands of years. There was also one white couple, the village teacher, Etta Jones, and her husband, Charles Foster Jones, who was the island's radio operator. He was in charge of sending weather reports and also worked on programs for the school. Charles and Edo were some of those adventurous types that made their way to Alaska when a lot of white people weren't really doing it as much. Charles had come up to Alaska in the 1890s during the Klondike Gold Rush and never left. Years later, he met Edda, who had moved there from New Jersey, and in 1923, when they were both 42 years old, they got married. They had actually only been in Attu for a year before the Japanese came. 
They fit in well with the community, though, and they loved the little village. Attu was kind of a utopia at the time, actually, because there was no alcohol, there was no crime, and the community really took care of each other, so that no one was really left wanting. It had been the first of the Aleutian Islands to be explored by the Russians back in the mid-1700s. The Russians had baptized most local natives and given them new Christian names. They lived a subsistence lifestyle, including trapping and fishing, and traded furs with the Russians. There were many houses in the village, but some people still lived in barabaras, which were small traditional dwellings constructed out of dirt and mud. Prior to the Japanese officially invading the island, there were signs of something strange to come. The locals would occasionally spot strangers in the distance, whom they called Tuganagus, their word for boogeyman. There were sightings of these strangers on other nearby islands as well, and they realized later that the Japanese had been doing reconnaissance on the islands, trying to map the area. The Atuans had heard about Pearl Harbor, and they were told that it was possible that the Japanese might come to the Aleutians. But in the first week of June 1942, the U.S. military was so distracted by the bombing of Dutch Harbor that they didn't even think to evacuate other islands until it was much too late. And so on Sunday, June 7th, hundreds of Japanese troops invaded just after church let out. The sound of the Japanese planes and warships arriving on the island was overwhelming, and residents attempted to run and hide while the Japanese came marching into their peaceful little village, firing machine guns. As the radio operator, Foster Jones was able to send one last message out, saying that the Japanese were invading before he destroyed the radio. The Japanese looked upon the white couple as possible Russian spies, which makes absolutely no sense to me. They separated them and interrogated them intensely, and by interrogated, I mean beat and beat and yelled and beat, that kind of thing. They used any means they could trying to get them to admit the truth that they were Russian spies, which of course they didn't because they weren't. When it was over, Edda was shown to the corpse of her husband. The Japanese told her that he refused to fix the radio and had committed suicide as a cowardly act, but she knew that he had been murdered. They ended up burying him on the island without a coffin. He would actually end up being the only civilian to be murdered in North America during the entirety of World War II by the Japanese. His remains would stay on the island until after the war, when in 1948 he would be reinterred at Fort Richardson National Cemetery. He may have lived a civilian life, but he was given a military hero's burial. And by the way, when they did find his remains on the island, they found that he had been shot in the head. He did not commit suicide. For a few months, the Japanese troops and the native residents warily coexisted on Attu Island until all of the Alaskans were taken in the cargo hold of a ship to Sapporo on Hokkaido, where they lived in one large building together as prisoners of war. The older kids and adults were used as manual labor and food was very scarce, which led to a lot of malnutrition. On many days, the prisoners would only receive a tiny bowl of rice for their food for the whole day. During the three and a half years that the Alaskans were held prisoner, nearly half of them died, many as a result of malnutrition and disease. 
Much of what we know about this POW camp comes from a memoir written by Nick Goladoff. He was only six years old when he was taken to Japan with his family. He began writing this memoir in the 2000s and he was able to finish it before passing away in 2013. This book is called Atu Boy and I used it as one of my references. And if you're interested in reading something with more of a memoir feel about you know, someone's personal recollections as being a POW, I would definitely recommend it. It was really touching. Once the residents had been taken away to POW camps, Atu was barely occupied for quite some time, with most of the combat action happening in and around Kiska. Throughout the winter, however, more troops were sent to Atu to begin construction on an airfield. Troops were instructed to dig in for long-term defense. But for most of the winter, there were actually only a few hundred troops, and not much was really happening. We will get back to Atu in time as the combat shifts back in that direction, but for the purposes of this episode, we will be focusing for the rest of the time on Kiska. At the same time as the Atu invasion, or within just a few hours, the small group of men functioning as the Navy Weather Detachment over on Kiska Island, there's about 10 or 12 men, were attacked with gunfire as they slept. A few managed to escape the initial attack, but turned themselves in within a few days. The island was just too harsh a place to stay a fugitive for long. But there was one hardy soul, 29-year-old William House, who managed to evade the 1,200 Japanese soldiers on the small island for 50 whole days, living hard off the land until he finally realized he would likely starve to death if he didn't surrender. He weighed less than 100 pounds when he finally gave up. I applaud you, William House. Also, that sounds very painful and horrible. It would be days before anyone else in the military knew what was happening on Atu and Kiska due to communication breakdown. Directly after the attack on Dutch Harbor, pilots spent hundreds of hours patrolling the region for the enemy, but with 770,000 square miles of water, it was impossible to find anyone in the terrible weather and pretty much 95% of the planes did not have radar. On June 10th, Japanese ships were spotted just off Kiska and Commander Erickson was notified. They soon realized that the Japanese had invaded Kiska. But time was not on their side. The few days it took for the US to realize that Japan had invaded gave the invaders a great head start to dig in with anti-aircraft guns. And by the time the military began airstrikes against the enemy ships, the combination of poor visibility and a strong Japanese defense made it initially impossible to hit anything and several men died trying in the first few days of the battle. While some better planes had arrived in the area to provide more reinforcements, many of the planes being used in the Blitz were PBY Catalinas. These amphibious aircraft were originally intended to be long-range long range marine patrol bombers and were more useful in bombing submarines than land-based targets with anti-aircraft guns. They were somewhat unwieldy and not great at flying quick evasive maneuvers, so basically it was kind of easy to shoot them down with an anti-aircraft gun. 
That's my non-plain knowledgeable explanation. Many, many PBYs and their crews would be lost to the seas during just the first few weeks of the Blitz against Kiska. The initial airstrike against the island lasted for days on end without letting up, 24-7. Those that were based on nearby Atka Island went back and forth all day, sometimes bringing in mortally wounded planes and crew members before hopping in another plane to head back out for another bombing run. Those that were based on Umnak Island could only make the trip once or twice a day because they had to go several hundred miles each way. The 24-hour attack did begin to score some hits against the enemy ships, but half of the Catalinas were badly damaged in just the first three days. After just a few days on Kiska, the Japanese had really settled in for the long haul. They had a huge number of anti-aircraft guns, and it made it damn near impossible for any American planes to even get close to Kiska without risking getting hit. Many soldiers would die trying in the coming weeks and months. Many lost forever to the icy waters below. During just the first 60 days, over 100,000 pounds of explosives were dumped on Kiska alone. It wasn't a totally useless endeavor because it forced the Japanese to hide out and stop work on offensive measures while they were getting bombed. Erickson began starting many of his daily briefings with, today's mission is to take off as soon as you can because there really wasn't many changes day to day, especially in the very beginning. On some days, the fog was so bad that you could only see a few yards in any direction. And this would cause all sorts of problems, especially for those flying without radar. The Japanese would actually use this to their benefit by putting long cables between mountain passes, trying to snare any American plane that might fly blindly through there. After a few weeks of this round-the-clock trying to bomb anything that they could see, it became pretty obvious that this was almost always going to be a futile effort, and they were using up a lot of resources pretty quickly. So bombings were scaled back to a few times a week on no particular schedule, just trying to keep them on their toes. Eventually, the pilots would fly lower and lower to within just a few hundred, maybe a thousand feet of the ground. This was done to try to get around the visibility issue and would lead to more hits on both sides and, you know, probably more likelihood of getting shot down as well or just crashing or running into a mountain. Just a few weeks into the fresh battle, Americans received word from the cryptographers that they should expect an attack on Atka Island, and the island was quickly evacuated just hours before the Japanese landed there. American troops retreated all the way back to Umnak Island, which left several hundred miles of the Aleutian chain to the Japanese. The Japanese now had control of Kiska, Atka, and Atu. And to quote Brian Garfield, who wrote the great book that I'm using as my main source material, The 1000 Mile War, whether the Aleutians would ever have a strategic use remained to be seen. In the meantime, both nations carried on the fight simply because this is where the fight was. Japan was afraid of an American invasion. America was afraid of a Japanese invasion. 
Fear forced the choice of their pathetic battleground. I think that sums it up so well. At the exact same time all of this had been occurring up in the Aleutians, one of the most decisive battles of World War II had been raging in the South Pacific. In 1942, there was a naval air station located at the Midway Atoll, an outer-lying U.S. territory approximately 1,000 miles southwest of Hawaii. The Japanese planned to launch an attack on Midway to lure out the U.S. Navy so they could destroy the remaining aircraft carriers that had made it through Pearl Harbor. However, with the Japanese Navy codes broken, the Americans were able to figure out when this attack would happen and they would be waiting to ambush the Japanese. This battle quickly turned into a massive win for the Allies, who lost 360 men in the battle and one aircraft carrier versus the Japanese losses of over 3,000 men, four, air four aircraft carriers, and hundreds of aircraft. This all happened the same week of June 4th through 7th, 1942. It would turn out that the Aleutian campaign was a poorly, a poor attempt at a diversion tactic that backfired terribly. By splitting their naval fleet and sending some ships and troops to attack the Aleutians, the Japanese had actually just weakened their fleet enough for the midway battle to not go in their favor. They thought that the American Navy would still be limping along, licking their wounds after Pearl Harbor and wouldn't have the strength to launch such a massive retaliatory attack. And ironically, while the Aleutian campaign had originally been a diversion for Midway, Japan ended up flipping the narrative. They presented it in their media as though the opposite were true. Midway had been a diversion so that they could invade the Aleutians. You know, the Aleutians, that super necessary strategic territory. In fact, the Japanese were so concerned about losing face over the Midway defeat that the truth of it would not even become known to the Japanese people until after the war. Even the families of those that had died at Midway were not informed of their relatives' demise for quite a long time. But America had our own version of censorship. The general public would not be made aware of the Japanese invasion in the Aleutians until weeks after the event had taken place, while the American victory at Midway was discussed often in the news as a way to rally the nation. As soon as the war in the Aleutians had really kicked off, all journalists were unceremoniously kicked out of Alaska, and many would try to get back in to no avail, and if they were able to somehow sneak in, they would be arrested if they were found. And when new men were sent to fight in the Aleutians, they often were completely misled about their destination until they were sufficiently isolated with their fellow soldiers on their way there, and they could no longer spread the word to anyone else. Even the men stationed in the Aleutians didn't necessarily know what exactly was going on in their own battleground. And throughout World War II, much of the news released about the war was heavily censored in order to keep American optimism alive. Of course, this only led to wild rumors which eclipsed the true magnitude of the Aleutian forces tenfold. Some thought that there were tens of thousands of Japanese men hunkered down in the Aleutians planning an attack on mainland Alaska, when in fact there were never any more than, you know, 3,000 maybe at most. The reasons for this censorship are many. Many of the top military officials involved in the Alaska campaign 
were just plain embarrassed about the invasion and did not want the general public to know about the massive waste of resources being used to squabble over these small, useless islands. And at the same time, they couldn't risk the public knowing that the Japanese had successfully invaded U.S. territory and were continuing to hold the islands hostage. And of course, they did not want America to focus on this comparatively small loss when they could be focusing on the massive win that was Midway. Actually, Midway was pretty much where the war turned towards, you know, the Allies winning. Stubbornness and pride on both sides would turn this battle into a several months long debacle and a massive waste of money, men, resources, everything. After the initial blitz against Kiska proved that the Japanese could not be bombed out of there, the strategy changed to one of just keeping them on their toes, keep a presence in the area, and not retreat any further. The plan for Japan was to sit tight on their conquered islands through the summer. They believed that America would want to avoid a campaign fought in an Alaskan winter, and that they would stop fighting them at the end of summer, and they could graciously leave without it looking like a retreat because that's worked before. The Japanese military continued to demonstrate a wartime sunk cost fallacy. Now that they had lost Midway, they had to absolutely hold on to this tiny victory in the illusions, no matter the cost. They invested massive amounts of time, energy, money, men, and resources in creating a supply line to send resources the 2,000 miles north to the tiny battle. General Yamamoto also believed that the Americans were preparing an invasion of their own, with the end goal being to invade Japan's mainland. So to prevent this, they also attempted to maintain a defensive line from the Aleutians down, which is complete impossibility unless you, you know, have all the militaries in the world combined, maybe. It was a massive endeavor. You might say that they brought a machine gun to a fistfight. At one point, Admiral Kakuta had in his command four aircraft carriers and a massive fleet of ships. The fleet had been sent north as reinforcements against a massive American attack that they expected for no reason. The fleet spent weeks patrolling the northern Pacific, waiting for an American attack that never came, before eventually heading on home. Nothing to see here, boys. Americans had fears that the Japanese were planning to invade mainland Alaska. And when they saw some Japanese ships in the Bering Sea, they panicked and developed the belief that they were headed to invade Nome. So in the first mass airlift in US history, within one and a half days, the military had moved nearly 2,500 troops, along with dozens of aircraft and a large amount of supplies up to Nome. This would turn out to be a bit of an oopsie and the troops would sit in Nome for a few weeks, doing absolutely nothing and probably playing a lot of cards. <laughs> At the time of the events in the Aleutians, another part of the Japanese naval fleet was fighting a one-sided war against the West Coast, bombing several locations all the way down to Oregon without causing too much damage or any injuries. It was truly a wild time in America. Pardon the terrible pun, but the tides began to turn when in mid-June, submarines were introduced into the North Pacific Theater. The first submarine action, which involved scouting the island of Amichka, ended when the sub crashed into a reef and sank. 
Thankfully, all of the men made it to shore, which they discovered was totally deserted, and they spent the next week as castaways until they were rescued. It wasn't really the best omen for things to come. However, at the end of June, several heavy-duty subs made it to the North Pacific Theater and quickly set about attacking Japanese destroyers, several of which they had sunk within the next few weeks. They would prove to be a tremendous asset to the continuing battle. One of the major issues related to the bad weather, as I previously mentioned, was the poor visibility, not only to the enemy, but to find one ways back, one, one's way back home to the small islands surrounded by endless gray water. The Americans did better with intel from locals, and they had decent navigational maps to rely on, but the fog often caused more crashes and collisions for both air and sea craft than actual combat. But despite having sent boats to Alaska to map it before the war even started, the Japanese found that the maps they had made were often extremely inaccurate. And sometimes they would just get completely lost at sea and never find their way back to wherever they were staying. And by midsummer, they had brought in a bunch of reinforcement zero planes, AKA roofs. The Nakajima A6M2N could fly 300 miles per hour and was outfitted with four heavy duty machine guns. They were inherently better at all aspects of this type of combat, and the PBYs would be absolutely no match for them. Towards the end of July, Theobald was given the order to launch an attack on Kiska from water. He led a fleet of over a dozen ships towards the island, but the fog was so thick that four of the boats were damaged in collisions among each other before they could even get there, and the fleet had to turn back. He actually led that fleet in the USS Indianapolis, and almost exactly three years later, in 1945, the cruiser would deliver parts of one of the atomic bombs to be used in the Manhattan Project. After that delivery, on July 28th, on a routine trip between Guam and the Philippines, the ship was torpedoed by a Japanese sub. Of the 1,200 men on board, 900 made it out alive after the boat sank in just over 10 minutes. However, miscommunication left them stranded in the middle of the ocean for four days before the military even realized the ship had sunk. Over those four days, hundreds more of the survivors would die. There was dehydration to contend with, fatigue leading to drowning, men who had gone mad from drinking seawater often would attack others, then of course there were the sharks. Hundreds of sharks surrounded the men lost at sea. And when a patrolling pilot finally spotted the oil-soaked survivors, there were only 316 left alive. Just four days after the plane spotted the survivors leading to rescue, the atomic bomb using the components that the Indianapolis had delivered was dropped in Hiroshima, and just two weeks later, on August 15th, Emperor Hirohito announced that Japan would agree to the Allied forces' request for surrender. In one of the greatest scenes in film history, and my favorite all-time movie, Quint the Shark Hunter in Jaws tells the story of how he survived the Indianapolis, and that's why he hates sharks so damn much. That was a random aside, I just had to mention it. A few days after Theobald's aborted attempt to attack Kiska from the water, Admiral William Smith was sent out to lead a fleet on a second attempt. The ships were unable to get very close to Kiska because of the reefs that surrounded it, 
and the risk of being hit by the shore guns. For a few minutes, an intense battle was fought involving the ships, the men on shore, Japanese roofies, or roofs, and American bombers. Due to being so far away, Admiral Smith was unable to accurately aim for any targets, so he just bombed the island in general. Afterward, when it was realized that the only real damage done had been to the island itself, where massive holes dotted the landscape after being hit by explosives, the event became known as the Navy's Spring Plowing. Afterwards, many ships, subs, and planes were sent to aid the war effort down south. Admiral Theobald, who was not having a very good time in Alaska, to say the least, was now left with very few craft under his command. He attempted to resign, but it was just not accepted by his boss, Chester Nimitz. And for the rest of his time in Alaska, he would play a very minor role in events. And after months of jostling for control with Theobald, Simon Buckner now had majority say over the military's actions in Alaska. And trust me, this is for the better. In mid-August, news about the bombing of Dutch Harbor was finally released to the general public. That same week, Senator A.B. Chandler, who was one of many in the Senate very angry about the censorship of what was taking place in Alaska, led a group of politicians up to Alaska to get the true story. They spent approximately half a day surveying the, the action in the Aleutians, which just so happened to coincide with one of the extremely rare sunny days. Once they returned to Washington, they spoke about how all the discussion of the fog was just rumors. While in the Aleutians, Chandler had met with Theobald, and afterward Chandler advised the military that Theobald was no good and that Simon Buckner should have command over the air and be sent reinforcements. This transition was already happening when he made that statement. <laughs> For the next six months of the war, after the initial flurry of activity had died down, Soldiers on both sides settled into a routine of harassment and retaliation. The Americans would bomb the Japanese at random times and days, and they often bombed without any hope of hitting anything just to keep the Japanese from getting too relaxed. There was great unhappiness on both sides. Believe it or not, boredom was probably the main problem for the men stationed there. They were given their first dose on the trip north the trip to Alaska by boat took 10 days to cover the 2,000 miles from Seattle to the Aleutians. There would be hours of intense boredom up once up north, followed by bursts of battle activity. The men kept their spirits up with gallows humor, and in their downtime, there wasn't really much to do, so they gambled and drank. There was only one bar among all of the Aleutian camps, which was called Blackies in Unalaska. And those that didn't have access to that bar took to brewing their own homemade alcohol, which I'm sure tasted delicious. For company, however, and this part is so cute, many dogs were flown in to keep the men's spirits up. And the only tree in all of the Aleutians was brought up specially to Umnak for Colonel Erickson's dog. And they made a sign saying Umnak National Forest. Though in the summer months, the sun would be up for you know, 20 hours a day or more. Because of the fog, the men would often go for days or weeks without a glimpse of the sun. And there was the ever-present wind. It just never let up. And it often was, you know, 80, 90, 100 miles per hour. 
And because of this, soldiers on both sides did a lot of their things in underground buildings. Even in midsummer, the men were always cold, and there were regularly barrel fires set around the base for men to stop and warm themselves. They would also use small contained fires to de-ice planes in preparation for takeoff. And while it was cold on the ground, the problem was even worse in flight. Up around 30,000 feet, the air temperature was generally 100 degrees or more below zero. The men also survived on very limited rations, often surviving for weeks on end, eating the same two to three foods for every meal. And it wasn't like hamburgers and nuggets like when you're a child it was like potatoes and rice nothing fun this affected them with all sorts of related illnesses thousands of them ended up with jaundice and others came down with pneumonia mental illness was also a major problem many of the men stationed in the Aleutians slipped into deep depression or felt the constant itch of anxiety and one of the worst things about being sent to the Aleutians was that there was no rotation for the flight crew stationed there. Once there, they were there for the long haul, or until they were sent home in a box, as they would often joke about with their gallows humor. Only a handful were actually able to get out of Alaska in one piece, and those were the toughest of the bunch that had survived plane crashes and were just about worn down to the bone. Life in the Japanese camps was actually much worse than for the Americans. When they weren't huddling underground to avoid air raids, they were being made to start leveling space for airfields on both Kiska and Attu. But by being so far away from their homeland, they couldn't get authorized for construction machi machinery, and thus the sh soldiers were made to do this hard labor by hand. And while the Americans regularly received shipments of supplies, even if limited, we were also constantly disrupting any supply ships we might see heading towards the Japanese, so they weren't really getting nearly as many supplies as we were. And because they were constantly being bombed, their living quarters were mostly underground and poorly constructed. The men there constantly felt damp and cold and experienced many ailments, both mental and physical, related to that quality of life. There was one really interesting character that ended up loving his time in the Aleutians. At the age of 48, rich and famous writer Dashiell Hammett, author of beloved detective novels like The Maltese Falcon and many more, decided to enlist in the army as a private to join the war effort. He already knew all about army life as he was already a vet of World War I and yet he decided to take a break from his luxurious life for a few years and ended up stationed in the Aleutians. He ended up on Adak Island and by the end of the war had been promoted to sergeant and was running the camp newspaper on Adak, which he personally integrated by choosing to add two African-American soldiers to the paper staff. He wrote quite a bit while there for the paper as well as co-writing a book about the Aleutian campaign. All told, he absolutely loved his time there, despite the fact that he had major health problems as a result of having TB during World War I, and he would develop more problems in the harsh Alaskan weather. And despite the fact that a few years after the war, 
McCarthyism would brand him as un-American, and he would be blacklisted for some time. His books and the movies based on them remain popular today, and despite his political leftism, he ended up being buried at Arlington National Cemetery when he died in 1961. Anyways, that was a random tangent I had to add in there and did not have an organic place to put it. Back to the hellish story of this experience. By the end of the summer, these men were just getting totally beaten down and it wasn't even winter yet. They were just exhausted. They were already freezing. It was still August. A cold weather testing lab had been set up in Fairbanks and was trying to figure out how to maintain the integrity of aircraft while flying in these super cold conditions because the way it was going, it seemed like this was gonna, this whole battle was gonna continue through the winter time because there was a very real fear of an aircraft icing up while on route and crashing and the wind and poor visibility led to a lot of problems as well. The weather played havoc on the radio signals and the wind could really change the duration of a trip by several hours. It wasn't uncommon for a pilot to make a flight one way at two or three hours, but then to have it take nine or 10 hours to return the same route. And for that reason, most planes flew with a huge abundance of fuel and loaded down with so much extra fuel and their bombs, the largest planes could weigh in at up to 65,000 pounds fully loaded and they took a mile of runway to take off. And so obviously takeoffs and landings could prove to be more dangerous to an airman's life than actual battle. So because of that, this cold weather testing lab was working around the clock. Meanwhile, summer was drawing to a close. The men that were stationed there were desperately hoping this thing would wrap itself up, but it really wasn't. The Japanese were several weeks into trying to dig out areas for future airfields, but it was proving to be a Sisyphean task. Every time it seemed that they were making any progress on leveling the area, American bombers or the weather would often just take them back to square one. The Japanese high command had not planned to continue the battle through the winter, but their plans were about to change. American military officials decided that there should be an airfield closer to Kiska to cut down on the cost of the regular air raids. After a lot of squabbling among the officers trying to decide on one of the Andrianoff Islands, which were within 250 miles of Kiska, it was settled that the new airfield would be on Adak Island. It would bring them 350 miles closer to their enemy. When the decision was finally made, the advance was set for August 30th, one week out. The plan was to move 4,000 troops overnight to the island where they would immediately get to work building shelter, hoping to get a head start before the Japanese realized where they were. The island had once been very populous, but several decades prior had slowly begun to become abandoned as the residents who had become actively engaged in fur trading with the Russians had migrated eastward. The Americans hoped that they would find the island completely empty. They knew that the Japanese had likely made exploratory missions to the island, but didn't believe that any had settled there for very long. 
Prior to the thousands of troops arriving on the island, a small elite unit of 66 commandos would be set to reconnaissance the island and check for any Japanese troops that may be embedded there. The goal was to prevent word somehow leaking about the Americans' migration. This top-secret group of commandos were known as the Alaskan Scouts, and the only other group I could really compare them to would be the Green Berets. They were the hardiest and toughest of men with survival skills unique to Alaska. In fact, they weren't even recruited from the regular troops stationed in Alaska. They were handpicked by Colonel Lawrence Kastner of the Alaska Command Division. He chose great soldiers whom he had previously fought with elsewhere, along with civilians from around Alaska. They came from a variety of backgrounds, including born and raised Alaska natives and white prospectors and miners who had migrated here and never left, and one of them had even left his job as a professor to join the unit. They went through training so intense it would make an army ranger cry. They would eventually become known as Kastner's cutthroats in the media, and they operated nearly entirely independently of most regular military regulations. They were pretty much given license to do whatever they had to do to get the job done. This reconnaissance of ADAC would be their first experience in the war, but it would be far from their last. And that is where I will wrap up the second part. Thank you for being extremely patient waiting for this, and you'll probably have to be patient waiting for part three. Hopefully there won't be a part four, but we'll see. Thanks guys, until next time.